Yeah, it's recording. Welcome back. <laughs> we're finally back. We're we're not really back though. We're still well, locked separate, away. But we're back in the podcast. We both have microphones now, which is that's that's a strength that we didn't have before. We've adapted to the situation, we've overcome, and now we're back here in the podcast where we should be. That's right, we've adapted. We've um Yes. <laughs> My brain is gone. I've been in lockdown for too long. Yet, <laughs> we haven't overcome. It's definitely gotten harder. So much harder. We just got a new microphone. Oh, we got a microphone transferred from one state to another. Yeah. When was the last time you actually spoke to someone outside of like your bubble? Uh, for me, it's been probably probably like a month and a half. I've uh, I've been inside for two weeks now. Yeah. So. Have you I'm named like a volleyball or anything? Or named a volleyball? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I, I can definitely feel myself doing some things that I wouldn't have normally done. But hey, talking to yourself yeah, and like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keeping yourself entertained in all kinds of weird, wonderful ways. But yeah. we need to do these things during COVID times. It's the only way to survive. We have to adapt and survive and overcome, right? <laughs> Such good well, content today. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's been a while since we've been in the actual same room together. Yeah, I don't remember what you look like, actually. No. Everyone looks so much smaller on the uh, on the Zoom on the Zoom screen. Like you think, yeah, I could take them. They're so small. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it's just perspective from the camera. Well, when we uh, when we get to real life again, I might just walk straight past you. I might not even recognize you. That's actually true. I've gained uh, something like eight kilos. I'm quite rotund now. Well, maybe you're a little bit lighter before. Now you're just more on the healthy side. That's that's what I call it, yes. <laughs> I've gotten healthy <laughs> by eating chocolate and family. pizza. <laughs> but you've been working on big changes the past two weeks. Well, yeah, well, that's the what... last podcast, there's been heaps of things that you've changed. Is it? What have I changed? Oh, heaps of stuff. We need to go through them all one by one. Oh, I mean, there's only one interesting thing. Oh, two interesting things. Okay, never mind. Yeah, carry on. I might even have a list of them here. <clears throat> oh, because we discussed it previously. <laughs> That's so meta of you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, first one. I know you're a big fan of Zapatos. Oh you yeah, Zapatos. Yeah, I've. Um, I don't know how much we talked about it on the episodes that we've released, uh, but. Uh, I did, uh, we started out, we have a TypeScript monorepo, serverless monorepo, and uh, I started out with Typeform, which was what everyone said was the cool hip thing. It was like number one when I, you look up packages for like ORM or database access for TypeScript. Did um, I introduce you to Typeform? I don't, probably not, no. It, it's, okay. it's like number one. So, yeah. no, we definitely talked about it, and we I think we came to a consensus, it. yeah. Because I'm always aware of what's being hyped. Yeah. And uh, no, that was yeah, my mistake. Was a good package. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I promised myself previously after working in Go and, and this sort of thing, not, never to use a, an ORM again. And I was like, well, TypeScript's quite different. So maybe it'll be different in TypeScript. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll give the ORM a shot. And uh, yeah, it's been, it, it was okay. It's very bulky, very clunky. It doesn't do what I would like, which is make my life easier. Um, there's a lot of like uh, reflection used, like reflect metadata, which doesn't map well into Postgres. So like if you type a type the uh, value as string, it'll try and coerce it to a string. If it's a date, it'll try and coerce it to a date. 
not really or like as it inserts the data, not, not really a huge fan of that at the database layer. Like that's okay. Maybe uh, at the API tier, which is what we do. We have reflect metadata for that, but uh, yeah, it's too, too risky. I'm not a fan. Give me the rundown on reflect metadata again. So essentially uh, reflect metadata is a library that lets you, when you declare a class property or uh, like constructor parameter or any of those things at runtime, you can see what the type is. So if you have a, if you have user ID and user ID is, is of type string, literally at runtime, you can ask what is the type of uh, the user ID because you've typed it as string. It falls down with unions and this sort of thing because uh, a union you can't represent in code unless it's like, I don't know, an array of, um, of types. The, the new, if they if they end up implementing reflect metadata, it'll probably get better and those sort of issues will be solved. But it's very basic right now, but it saves a lot of like uh, copy pasting, like types and testing, a whole bunch of stuff. So I do like so it a, for simplicity. It's a TypeScript thing? Yeah. So for example, when I when I wrote the deserialization library that we use, the, like our, our DTO library, data transfer object library, uh, I if I have a user object and I have a like user response, if I say at like user is of user colon user, so user is a user, then when I like create the object, it will actually know at runtime, this has the constructor for the user. So if I want to call like dot create or whatever to map the data correctly without needing so much like manual handholding and type mapping, uh, then I can do How that. How does it know at runtime though? Well, when TypeScript compiles with reflect metadata, it actually wrap, it's everything's like vanilla JavaScript at the end of the day. Yes. So, so uh, it compiles everything down um, with a wrapping function around each of the uh, pro like property names when it defines it. And it actually just says, it literally just has the value, the variable. Like if you run oh. TSC with a code base that uses reflect metadata, you'll see like the actual class name or like the, a big S string is like included in the like declaration. And if you have a decorator, it's actually that big S string is passed directly into the de decorator as a function, essentially. It's all, it's all JavaScript. There's nothing really special about it. So, Do you need to uh, import a package to use reflect metadata or is it? Yeah, you have to import reflect metadata. That's is, it. It, is it in the TypeScript package? What? No, so you have to install it. It's the same as like uh, experimental meta like decorators a little bit uh, where yeah. it's like it's not a standard so they haven't um like added it to the language completely. But uh, it is like heavily used in most frameworks. So if, like Nest.js I'm pretty sure uses it and so does Loopback and all these like anything that has an IOC container like a uh, would have a would have reflect metadata cuz it's just take, it's so much effort if you have to do the like service locator uh, like pattern for your IOC container. Yeah. Yep. Very yeah. nice. So, we're on a tangent there. Sorry. About that. <laughs> no, that's but, fine. Uh, <laughs> well, that's uh, that's that's typeform. Like typeform uses that. I, I I don't think it's bad to reflect metadata. In fact, I wish it got better because I think it's quite strong, uh, and it reduces a lot of duplication um, and uh, simplifies a lot of code. It does add a runtime cost because it is actually evaluating functions, but whatever. But uh, yeah, typeform also has. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Typeform, but it has over 1,200 like, uh, 
issues open. And uh, a lot of them are issues that impact me, <laughs> it seems. <laughs> and uh, I made a really good choice when I started using it. Um, every ORM I've used, so I've been forced to use ORMs because of code bases that existed. I do not use the relations at all, ever, from an ORM. I think that's like ultimate sin. That will fuck you over harder than anything else you can do. So you know how you can say like many to one in um, yeah. like Rails and Ruby, all this stuff. Instead yeah. of using all those, I actually will write the query myself to do that load in because the if you there's two ways to get that data, like that that join data. And one is like bad for like the worst for performance. And one is uh, like way too manual and, and difficult, which one is when you call the method, it'll actually load it behind the scenes and then like block until it's loaded, which is, you don't, you never really know. This, this happens a lot in Rails where like you ask for the username and it loads like 16 different models, like in the most inefficient way. You do that to 10 users and you're loading, you know, 160 models or whatever. It's pretty yeah. hectic. And then the other way is you have to actually tell the ORM to like load that relation in, both of which are not are not really good. They don't make the code simpler. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really going to be writing all these classes that, with types and column names built in. Is that just that the LRMs do it that way just because the abstraction is quite complex and they need a generic way to handle it across all the different use cases? Is that what happens? Yeah. So, I mean, the issue is most of the ORMs, they're, they all try to be either active record or hibernate, uh, Active record in Rails is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I love active record. But um, is that a pattern or is that an actual? It's both a pattern and a library. So okay. there's, there's an active record library. There's also probably like an observer library, right? Even though observer is a pattern. So it's the same sort yeah. of thing. Active record is where, like, if you had a user class and you said uh, dot update name, then it would actually issue the SQL query uh, as well as update the state on the model. Whereas other ones, you have to actually like pull out the, the, the entity and then you store the entity back into the, 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 the uh, repository once you're done with it. It's very common in Java or it's like a common like domain-driven design sort of trope, like having to, yeah. to find and then store at the end of it explicitly. Yeah. Um, the active record, what was the other one you mentioned? Like repository pattern, uh, which is which uh, I don't know if it came from um, uh, domain driven design, but uh, it is mentioned in that book, and that's where I uh, like uh, first saw that. Other than just in code itself. Oh, but I thought you said there was active record and another way of doing it. The LRM. Oh yeah, like manually saying like load in this relation, which is what okay. which is what I'm doing now. Um, there's, uh, there's an infinite amount of magic in ORMs because they want to seem like they're the coolest kid on the block and they do everything. But in reality, all you really <laughs> should be doing is uh, finding the model, saving the model, deleting the model. Yeah, that, that's, that's all I really want the library to do because everything else is super dependent on my application. Uh, and even things like, uh, if I just want to know, does this thing exist? Just, just Whereas I can just write a select... Uh, exists from users in uh, SQL. I have to like figure out what their specific syntax is. And because the ORM is an abstraction layer over like 20 databases, so it's an abstraction layer over MongoDB, Postgres, an abstraction layer over, over SQLite, all this stuff, 
it ends up being that it's not really good at anything. So it and half the features will break at runtime because it's not supported in your database, but you didn't you didn't realize that at the time. So so they they're abstracting like the data access at the wrong layer. I feel an ORM like if I need to access my users and potentially I could be loaded into either a SQLite database or a Postgres database. That should be done like at my code level because the way that you access users from Mongo versus from Postgres are potentially massively different. And you'd be better off just managing that yourself, I feel. So, you know, before how you said when you uh, are using the LRM, you won't use the relations like the many to one. Yeah. So how do you do that with the LRM? Do you just write a raw SQL query? Yeah, I just find find the models. That's what they do. There's not really much magic. Active Record has a little bit of magic from Rails where it will actually do it will actually join the 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 data and then like reduce down until it finds the specific model with the ID and then it will create relations from each unique ID. Much more interestingly, but most of the like uh, shittier <laughs> JavaScript ones like Typeform I don't believe do anything quite intelligent like that. So and uh, interestingly, I used to hang around on the Typeform uh, Slack channel and uh, help people with their, their bugs. And uh, it's a lot of beginners are going on to Typeform. I can tell you that, uh, that have never used, that don't, don't understand anything about SQL or databases at all. But um, there's a lot of uh, issues that stem from using those relations and those magic helpers that w- were that people were saying are so much easier. But in reality, if, even if you just use the normal query builder and said find by ID twice, which, which isn't that much more code, it's like one more line of code, would save you so much time debugging. So, But when you're going to write, when you write raw queries, I suppose you open up, you lose your type safety, right? N- no, but I'm not saying, I'm not saying run raw queries for mm-hmm. one. Uh, I, I mean, yes, that is a good option as well is to run a raw query. You don't lose your type safety necessarily. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of, that's one of the things that Zapato solves. But um, if we stay on Typeform, uh, everything has to be deserialized into a model, which means if I have a, a very wide table with, uh, you know, 100 columns, I still have to load all of those every time I fetch data or I have, or I lose type safety essentially, which is not ideal. There's plenty of other solutions like Zapatos or uh, I wish I could remember the names of the others. I evaluated four or five before I decided. Um, and I evaluated four or five, the same ones uh, almost a year ago when we started. Um, and uh, there's, much, there's much better solutions than having like a, to manually map out your database. So, so they've come a long way that in the past. Oh yeah, yeah. TypeScript's gotten a lot better recently as well. So it, it's improving dramatically, I think. There's a lot more ty- uh, features. TypeScript feels a lot more safe. A lot of the functional paradigms that you weren't able to do before are available now uh, because of like, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, the ternary and types, which is like conditional types, essentially. Yeah. Because it was probably TypeScript version 3.0 something when you reviewed it last time. Yeah, so a, a lot of the features that I use every day now didn't even exist and mm. make my life uh, substantially easier. Yeah, isn't yeah. it funny how it can just totally change the way you do things? Mm. These little, the, the those, type system itself, yeah. Yeah, adding those into the language and it just opens up so many new possibilities where you can remove a full LRM and, and change it out. 
Yeah. For so at the end of the day, uh, anyway, we can talk about what I moved to. Would I finally? So I looked at Slonik, which was another one, which is like it claims to be type safe and everything, but I found the maintainer to be a bit of a, you know, not a not the nicest person, and also <laughs> also it seems like uh, type TypeScript was like a second class citizen um, in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zapatos is the one that is the most interesting to me because it is just for Postgres and it is just for TypeScript. Oh, is it just Postgres? Only Postgres. Absolutely not any other database. Have and I that is my this? favorite decision of <laughs> any any like query builder that I've seen because he's okay. reduced the scope so much that he only has to handle the one purely optimized... And I don't mean optimized as in like performance. I'm not super worried about like what the individual like millisecond of the query, like level of the query is. I'm thinking more about like the developer experience and everything. Like every bit of Postgres is available for me at my fingertips because I use this library now, which it has never been before. I always previously had to use Postgres. Yeah. So, which I think is a relatively safe, (laughs) safe bet Postgres. It's not many articles of people saying, oh, we're moving from Postgres to Mongo because this whole (laughs) relational thing really didn't work out. (laughs) It's quite uncommon that. It's quite, quite typically the opposite. Yeah. Not that they haven't gotten better in the last few years, but uh, yeah, the Postgres just does everything. You know, like uh, if you're a startup and you're not picking something that can do both your analytics and your uh, like day to day stuff and be like transformed and sort of denormalizes your data, and you don't have to do a whole bunch of planning up front, I'd like yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me why you use use a, a NoSQL database. Yeah. People yeah, people think that makes it easier. Yeah. You know what the hardest part of my application is to deal with is the JSON B stuff, the stuff where I've actually opted to say like, all right, Postgres, I'll handle the types for this. I'll just put JSON in this column field. Those are the hardest parts to migrate. The stuff that is like a column is so easy to migrate and get fixed in the rest of the app. The migrate from what migration are we talking? So for example, like all of the, so uh, in Postgres you have a, a row and the row has different column types. Uh, you could have like a string, an integer, and recently there's JSON B, which means that uh, Postgres operates quite effectively as essentially close to a NoSQL database. You could implement like a key value database or whatever and still be able to query data efficiently. JSON B is like a indexable and queryable format of JSON. Oh, so could you could you query the JSON B column with yeah. some P value? Yeah, so there's a gen, I think it's a general inverted index or something. And uh, Oh, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. So, it? yeah, so that's relatively recent. I think that's only Postgres 9 or 10. Yeah. And uh, it's gotten better and better. And uh, it actually, yeah, substantially improves the performance of, like, general, like, just key value lookups. But also an interesting thing about Postgres that a lot of people don't know is you can index on... I don't want to go too deep into how database indexing works on this episode, but but, uh, um, you can, uh, most databases will only let you index by flat values. Um, But Postgres amazingly has the ability to, which means that you can only index by like the user ID because that's a string. So it creates a binary tree and it says, all right, let's look for the user ID in this list. And it goes down the binary tree and it's really fast because it's just like, it's cutting it the problem in half or whatever. With a expression index, Postgres is smart enough to be able to run a function when the row is inserted and then index the result of that function. So for example, 
if you had two different columns, first name and last name, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be in MySQL, uh, you'd have to create another column called uh, full name and then store the data twice and then mm. actually index full name if you wanted to search by that. But in Postgres, you can concatenate the two strings as like a function or an expression and actually index the result of that and then search through that tree. Whenever it sees that the first name is concatenated with the last name, it will attempt to use that index. So you like you can improve the performance of nearly anything. Yeah. So much power. Yeah. Infinite power Postgres. It's all built in too. It's crazy. It is. And... Uh, I think it's a, it's so much harder to cut yourself with Postgres as well because there's always like a, a relatively simple path and every all, your data is so strict. If you don't start with a whole bunch of uh, null, nullable columns, it's hard to, you know, fuck up your data integrity. Mm. But um, yeah, so Zapatos takes advantage of all this, whereas previously when I used Hibernate in Java or I can't remember what I used in Go and then uh, Typeform and Active Record, you don't really get anything for free from Postgres. Even though Postgres is like the best typed system on the planet, I can't just like know for a fact that user ID is a string and it's always going to be there in the type system. With I have to actually tell Java or tell, uh, sorry, tell Hibernate or tell Typeform like user ID is a string. And then if I make a migration, I have to update all of my models to take that into account and all my queries, make sure those are all still valid. The really nice thing about Zapatos is it takes the actual Postgres schema that you pointed at and it will compile uh, a schema.d.ts for that, which has all of the column names and all of the possible types. And so all of the JSONB ones, you can even like provide a custom runtime type for if you're promising that it'll be that type. So I no longer, when I run a migration, have to go into the like type form folder and like shamefully update all of the things that reference this ID and make them nullable. I just run generate and I actually can verify that my migrations are doing what I'm expecting because I can just glance at my schema file that was generated by Zapatos. It's quite, mm. quite strong. Is that built into Zapatos, that generate functionality? Or did you yeah, have it to is. adapt some of it? Most of the other ones, so Typeform has a generator, but it, it again, it's it's built to generate schemas from many different databases and there's like Which a million different ways to use them. Right. Yeah. yeah, because they're trying to do too many things. All, right. of these, all of these tools are trying to be uh, fantastic at everything and they ended up being shit at, every, like shit at almost everything. Mm. Um, so whereas Zapatos, I feel like even though it's literally only like 10 files, the code base. So I was able to just read through the whole thing and just get a grasp for it. And it was, yeah, it's super impactful. So now every single query that I write is typed. If I write a view in Postgres, I no longer have to like figure out like, all right, what's the return type of this value? What's the return type of this value and map it into a class? I run generate, bam, there's the view. It's a type and I can just run a raw SQL query and get the type of that data back out. It's absolutely fantastic. Sounds like you like it. I do. I'm getting too excited. I'm getting worked out. <laughs> it's really what I've been looking for forever. Like even back in the day with Ruby, I used to use this, um, it's like a, a active record doc or whatever, which when you, when you ran a migration, it would insert comments at the top of the file and on each like parameter so that when you like hovered over the, the class name, you could see what the, the type is. And that's all I used to be able to get. And so this has sort of been my dream is being able to like, manage all of my types for my storage in one place and have that being represented um, in the app in an easier way. I think it's going to make uh, development 
so much faster for everything that's, that I want to do. That's what I was going to ask you. So does it make you faster or does it make your code safer or way or, faster? Okay. Like development time is way down. Um, and it means that I can try things. It means I can play. Whereas I was able before adding a view was a process of editing all these files, figuring out what the types are, all of this like manual labor stuff that I really don't like because I'm, I'm long-term lazy (laughs) and and also short-term lazy. Which is ideal. Yeah. I've got both lazies, (laughs) but uh, now, uh, yeah, so, so much easier. Like I, 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 Every single, I no longer need to dip down and like uh, figure out like the optimized view that will do everything for everyone. I can write like a view specifically for the one use case that's particularly heavy uh, and just get it done in like 15 minutes. Whereas before I'd have to write it separately from the application and then test it in Postgres and then actually write my application test. I can write my application test while I'm developing the query because I have the types all there. It's fantastic. What's the Postgres views again? I know you've told me this once before, but... Yeah, view is just like, it's like a saved query. That's pretty much it. So it's a query that you can look at like a table. If you squint, it's a table. So you can do select star from users, and let's say users is a real table. Uh, Let's say you want users who have an email set. You could make a view called set email, like users with set email, uh, (laughs) which is a stupid view. But uh, you could actually just have a where clause in that and then just do select star from users with email. And that's the most yeah. bit, like the most basic possible example I can give you. Um, an an interesting thing about, a, yeah. A view is just uh, a schema of the data that already exists. It's not saved twice, is it? No. So that's a materialized view. So there's two ways to operate. One is when it's materialized, which is uh, it's actually persisted to disk. So, but you have to run jobs or have like a trigger to update that, like hourly, daily, whatever your caching uh, like strategy is. Whereas with a view, it's it's always treated. So it just makes your queries simpler. Like you no longer have to like join. If you have really complex joins, it gives you a reason to keep your data normalized in a reasonable way. So like instead of like trying to make your code simpler by fucking with your database and making everything easier to access, you can just write a, a view that yeah. like joins everything together that you would need in one hit instead of like making... So instead of having like user profile and like all these other different models everywhere, which is hard, or addresses, typically you typically have a separate table, you write a view that joins all those together. And to most developers, it would just look like you're querying the view and you got back the user with their addresses as a JSON array and their email so yeah does that make sense yeah so but it's interesting so the the time saving is from all the generation because i would would assume that the it would probably take you more time because you're working at one layer of of abstraction uh lower lower or higher one layer of extraction lower than what you are with the ORM. Is that right? Well. Because you're closer to the database, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that's not yes. a bad thing with Postgres. It's Postgres. You want to be close to Postgres. But what I'm saying is, like, you would assume yeah. that an ORM should be easier for you to use because if you abstracted it up one layer, you would hope that, you know, the, the tools that it's going to give you 
allow you to be more productive, but obviously not the case. Is it, is it because of the problem? You can't abstract SQL. That's, that's what I think a lot of people have figured out. And I've always heard this and I've always like said it as well. Like, and it's normally what I say in the beginning, but I'm like, well, we can use an ORM cause it'll be easier for other people. But uh, at the end of the day, it actually pretty much never ends up being easier because there's so much magic in an ORM because they all try to do that. What I was saying before, which is uh, abstract over not only just SQL for Postgres, like if there was a maybe a Postgres ORM would be okay in a way, but abstracting over both like graph databases and uh, SQL databases, like key value databases, all of this stuff, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. It just can't be optimized. It can't be optimized. Yeah. And when you make it, the more generic a tool is, the harder to use it is in some circumstances uh, when you need something to just do something. Like I just need to select this and know if this column exists in this other table. What are, what's the options? Well, if I do this not in SQL, I have to load the table. I, I have to load the data into a model and then I have to load the other model and then like maybe load another model or whatever. Whereas I can just write three joints in, in a string and it's type safe because of Zapatos. So, yeah. So Zapatos is very good for you. But what about actually ideas. one thing you didn't touch on with Typeform? Did you have some database connection issue too? Yeah. So like I said, there were a lot of issues. And connections or something like that? Yeah. So, uh, Zapatos doesn't, um, it, it only does the like type typed, uh, query thing. It's actually compiles away to next to nothing. Uh, so it's only TypeScript. So, but Typeform, for example, manages the connection pool from node PG separately. They actually like create a pool and then you can't access it. So like when I call connection.create, it creates the connection pool and then it's hidden from me. So I can't fix the errors that Typeform throws. We use serverless. Um, <clears throat> so uh, when the connection is suspended, the the pool needs to be smart enough that if to check that if a connection is died, uh, delete the connection and then pick another one instead of just being like, fuck, a connection's dead. Let's die always and forever. Essentially what is what was happening to me before. Um, so because Zapatos only does the querying and type safety, I'm able to just write the, write the, the 15 line change that was required in Typeform to just get this working essentially. So what about updating all your tests? That was the migration. I didn't have to. Was it hard? I, I didn't really have to update my tests. Really? Yeah. Not really. Not so for what was involved in the migration? I mean I like the code that I wrote. Well, I'm not done. Like uh so Typeform and Zapatos live concurrently right now. So I've done probably fifty percent of the models that exist but they were all part of stuff that I was already working on. Luckily I had a ticket that was already like a, a large scale change. So I was able to, at the same time while I was writing all this new code, uh, just use the better library for it. And uh, yeah, as we go, I'll, I'll end up killing, killing all the rest of it. Uh, Test didn't really have to change because uh, I've abstracted most of this stuff out of uh, the, like stuff that actually needs to be tested. I do most of my tests at a very high level. Uh, so like API level or uh, like the things that I test are typically like higher out into the API. Too many unit tests can be a bit stifling. So, uh, and prevent changes like this from being able to happen. Those are the ones that I really had to change were the ones that directly access the database. 
but uh, like the, the underlying structure didn't change. So if I needed to update every single test because I did this, that would have been a sign, like a code smell, like I would have fucked up in my development process. But uh, because everything's sort of abstracted out a little bit, uh, the process of me adding Zapatos was 10 lines to the test startup script. And then uh, I moved away from using Typeform to insert the, the test fixtures into the database. And so I had to rewrite that, which was probably like 100 lines. So, yeah. But it was actually way shorter in Zapatos as well because it's just the types are there. I don't have to like tell it what data can be inserted. I just say it's any table. Any data for any table can be inserted. So, yeah. You're definitely a fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I can get a sponsorship. It's very interesting. It's only one, I think it's only one guy that actually maintains it. He's a, really? he's quite a hero. Yeah, I read his article. He wrote an article a while back that was about um, his system. Uh, and this was, he said, this is the way that he works. And then uh, I read that and I was like, that sounds perfect, but I'm not going to be able to do it. And then uh, he ended up building this library, which is his way of working, essentially, that he's just shared, which is fantastic. Do you think, uh, is it a popular library? How many stars? Not yet. There? It will be. It'll blow up. Yeah. How many stars? Oh, I can tell yeah. you right now. <clears throat> uh, 600. 600. Almost so quite low still. Quite I low. Wonder if, I wonder if, you know, there must be a certain amount of hesitation when you make a library like this because obviously you need to maintain it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, look at Typeform, 1,400. How many open issues did you say? Like, I know, it's a full-time even... job for them. Yeah. So. But, uh, well, that's that's the thing. Like, if Typeform was actually like 17 different, uh, you can't abstract storage. I don't believe that's possible. Like, not effectively. Like, you can abstract it at an application level. You will not be able to find the universal driver for storing data from an application. It's not possible. So, like, building a universal ORM like that is just, like, an impossible task in the first place. Whereas the thing that this this guy has written, J- George is his name, is so small. <laughs> what and are George people going to ask him to update? Like... <laughs> there's 10 files like yeah. you can just fork it and rewrite the whole thing if you want so it's it's more his methodology than anything those are the those are the tools that i'm finding i like a lot more than anything else are where there's a really strong pattern behind it more, instead of it being so like react query which is something i added has a oh, is good. more it, it's less about being a framework for everything and just being like a pattern that works really well for anything like is it's that a segue? Did you just make a segue? I wish you didn't ruin it because it's actually my first <laughs> effective segue into anything else I've ever done. <laughs> the React query. Oh, tell me what you've done there. That's all front end, right? Uh, yeah. So I've been doing a lot more front end lately. Uh, and so I find that what we have been doing is a bit error prone and easy to break. We didn't we didn't abstract too much in the beginning in the way of I abstracted like what the actual queries were, but we didn't abstract like the logic of fetching them. Uh, so I looked for all of I looked at all these different like <clears throat> request libraries and I contemplated should I write my own? Should I uh, uh, try and add some caching level to it or something? Because I wanted to be able to update data. We don't use any global state management pretty much except for React Query now. So we don't have yeah, Redux. Which has been fantastic. It's a great choice. Yeah. Um, uh, as mi- the least amount of global state, the better. Uh, but uh, 
there is some stuff that you want to sort of treat globally, which is like, if I update this form over here, I want it to reload this part of the app on the other side, right? And they're not really related. So I don't want to use context. They're like almost not, they're not touched at all. Also, I sort of need to be able to do general async stuff with error handling that doesn't make the error, like the user freak out because there's a whole heap of toasts. Before it was all like, all the errors were like toast driven. So we'd like, there's an error and then like if there's 10 errors in a row, you get 10 toasts pop up and it's like, oh shit, this app's really broken. <laughs> but now um, React Query... Well, to fix that was we just changed the color of the toast from red to blue and that fixed it. <laughs> yeah, it's not so scary. It just says <laughs> info. Now, yeah. Yeah. Errors, errors are not red anymore. But uh, React Query handles like, it's a, it's, it just provides one or two hooks that just say like, all right, well, if you have any asynchronous data source, if there's something that returns a promise, uh, then we can take that and we can store it. And then if you change a key, uh, then it will update that data. It'll try to refetch that data. So uh, their methodology, I think they called it server state, like server-side state, essentially, server-side state synchronization. And so all you have to do is, unfortunately, it's not super TypeScript friendly because the key the keys are strings or objects which aren't typed. So you don't know if like I'm passing the right type of data to the right uh key value but it'd be very obvious if all of a sudden like users were being loaded in places of admins right in the application but uh it's been fantastic uh it's one of those things that now that i've used it i think i would use it always like right out of the box because it's not like redux where it's like uh, i might use it because it's like i don't see redux as being it is a pattern of like cqrs sort of stuff but it's not a pattern that just makes things better overall it's a pattern of like, this is how you do state management. Whereas React Query is just like, you do what you do and we just handle the asynchronous stuff for React specifically. So lightweight, so simple, just like Zapatos, strong library, love it. Yeah, you make a good point because with Redux at the beginning, I know we had a conversation about, oh, should we use Redux? And then there's the hesitation of like, yeah, it's going to be beneficial, but who wants to write all the boilerplate? So then you like you hesitate, like, oh, let's just wait a bit longer and see if we can get away without it. Well, there's so a straight away tells yeah. your story. Like, it's overall, it's like there's trade-offs there. Helps you on one side and hinders you on the other. But in front end as well, what I feel you really want is the dumbest client possible. Like yeah. the fastest way to build by far is with a robust API and a dumb client. Like, and it's been as, as dumb as possible. Like there's no massive sagas or anything. If we manage state and like transaction, like multi-step transactional stuff, we do that via the API essentially, or just via simple like uh, Boolean flags. And then the API keeps track of that stuff. We don't do anything that uh, would uh, like require sagas or anything. We handle all of that stuff inside of the API instead which means that you, it's easier to test, right? Because it's not tied to React either, which is which is fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Is React Query, it's not built into the API client that you wrote, is it? It's still, it's still running on the front end. It still does, it still uses API client just like it was fetching normal data, right? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> for context, I wrote at like a TypeScript API client to wrap all of our methods because I end up doing that anyway for testing. So all of the HTTP calls, I don't need to keep track of whether it's a Git request or a post request or what the parameters are. And then I 
<clears throat> I map our DTOs inside of that in and out of the our actual API. So we have a little bit of code sharing between the front end and back end. So if I update some data here, I don't have to like message a developer and say, oh, just so you know, like the name on this is not, is optional now, right? That sort of stuff. Um, so React query, so the, the API client handles being a client of the API. So all it does is make the request and return the data. And React query handles the uh, like loading and retry states and all that all that other sort of jazz that's not really the responsibility of, of the API client. But I did write a little uh, interface between the two of them that makes it easier to uh, use. Okay, okay. So, yeah. yeah. There's an adapter, and uh, I don't find all the names on it super easy, so I just write a, a much smaller interface. There's like 400 different parameters that you could pass in, but I only care about three, so mm. only map those out. Small interfaces. And if I want to re-app, re like replace React Query, I could do it quite easily just by rewriting the underlying implementation of that wrapper. Yeah, so is React Query quite slim, like Zapatos, or is there a fair bit to it? It's bigger, for sure. I mean, it's React, so there's yeah. hooks and all. It's importing React. It's not <laughs> not as uh, attractive as Zapatos. Yeah. But uh, if, if you're someone in the middle of a React code base, it's quite a lifeline. And... Uh, I think I've spoken about this before, but I feel like the tools that are beneficial to learn, don't learn like the framework, learn something that's like a, a, a much higher level pattern. And I feel like React Query in a way is a bit more like a, a higher level pattern. You can apply it to GraphQL, you can apply it to HTTP APIs, RPC, uh, local storage. <laughs> so, or WebSockets even like a, a, we, we spoke, um, a long time ago about how React Query could help you write a real-time API using WebSockets quite like super easily. Mm. So, and same thing with, with Zapatos. It's just a, a higher level system. Yeah. So when you were writing front-end code, do you use any of those UI tools that are out? Uh, yeah, because it's been so long since you write front-end code, you probably don't even remember how to do it anymore. That's true. Well, uh, <laughs> I did actually buy uh, uh, Tab 9 for about two weeks uh, as a trial. Have you tried any? Have you tried any of the AI code code things? No, well, I watched the videos when that Copilot, the GitHub Copilot came out. Yeah. A few people said it was good, then a few people like, I've seen the Twitter posts where it just went totally wrong. Yeah. Did you see the Primogen's video? He has a video where he um, he makes a full video game uh, just by like writing a comment and then hitting like control space and... He, he like, if you change the text of the comment, it changes what the variables are. So he'd be like, uh, I'm, this is a game for two people. And then when he created the struct, it said player one user, uh, player two user, for example. Right. So yeah. it, it's fairly intelligent, but, uh, I found it to be one of my least favorite, like editor helpers, uh, that uh, I've found. Or tab nine. Tab nine. Yeah. yeah. I don't think copilot co would be any different. Yeah. Um, Contextually, a semantic completion is worth way more than an AI. An AI is going to tell you, oh, did you actually mean this? Uh, or it's going to give you like some totally arbitrary completion for the, like, no matter what you do, it's not going to be specific to your application and your use case. Um, if you're writing one-off scripts that never have to be maintained by anyone else ever again, I feel like those are great tools. But everything that, 
tab nine spat out, I pretty much was like, fuck, <laughs> had to delete. It's just like me. Oh, that looks right. And then I pay and then I accept it and then it's not working. Yeah. So, or not, not that it's not working cause it didn't complete massive bits. Like copilot, it looks like it has more like multi-line stuff. Tab nine does have multi-line stuff, but it can't pick up on the context of your specific application. Even though I paid for the premium deluxe, like local AI, no, no code going to the cloud, like deep mind apparently that learns from the way that you code. Uh, oh, after really? using it for what three weeks, um, it got so no, it, it was learns, no better. Type on learns from yeah the code that you code. that you use. Yeah, so you can oh, opt into either sending it to a remote server or uh, which is the default, or I, I think you can do, get that for free potentially, or you can pay for the deep deep learning one locally. So I paid for the deep learning locally and. Uh, I also, I got so frustrated with the local one. I was like, all right, let's go to one of my personal projects and just try it out with the remote uh, completion. It was still just, just absolutely the worst. So does it... It's like having a very smart junior <laughs> type code for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Like if I just wanted someone to type for me, that would like, but like do it in the wrong way. Like you give them a general instruction and they just write the wrong thing and you're like, ah, shit, can you just change this variable? That's not right. It's yeah. like when you're typing a text message and autocorrect changes it and you're like, no, I don't want that word. Why yeah, exactly. It's like yeah. when it changes fuck to duck. Like when have yeah. I ever messaged someone the word duck? Surely I think it's probably no, been in, literally never has anyone messaged someone duck unless they're going to a Chinese restaurant. So it doesn't really make any sense to me. So with the, the deep learning stuff, does it actually review the code base that it's living in or does it have to yeah. like, only as you run it your... so you could like so you could so for our repo for example you can say okay look at this whole repository and then it'll learn like the way that you've written the code then as you go from then on it'll start recommending or does it have to watch you do it yes so essentially so the only thing that it as an example of that, the only thing that it did well is like I always declare classes in almost the same way at injectable class. And then it's normally the file name is the title of the class and then open bracket and constructor. Yeah. <laughs> and it would, and that was like pretty good, but it's the value of like a snippet that I could write. Uh, so just about to say, I wrote a, snippet so <laughs> a single snippet is of more value than the best completion that I got from, from tab nine. Uh, it would, on occasion, it could tell, I do have a standard, like, there's like seven or eight method names that I use on almost all of my use case objects. So it was being like, oh, for, cur for current business, right? It was like completing that automatically. But, you know, that's actually more frustrating because tab nine gets prioritized above my TypeScript server stuff. So I'm really more interested in what the TypeScript server is telling me because it's actually valid and it knows what can belong there. Accurate, yeah. Whereas tab nine is like, I don't know, man, what if we just put like some comments here? <laughs> it'll be fine. Trust me, it'll compile. It was even recommending like uh, variables that didn't exist in scope. So I have no idea like what, what the heck was going on with this guy. So it's very, very bad. I mean, I do use Vim, so maybe it's, maybe it's that, uh, but, uh, they they claim they support it fully on their homepage, and I, I did get it all working. So, yeah. I mean, if the tool doesn't work at least ninety five percent accurately most of the time, it becomes a hindrance. I feel. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's even because and it, it frustrates you. The the like hindrances, even though they're not taking up that much time, like bother me so much. Because yeah. like I lose focus because I'm so upset at this tool for completing like the wrong thing. I, it, yeah. And also, uh, like I would think that because it's slow, it was okay. For one, my I run a Arch Linux laptop right now. I'm at uh, one one point six gigs of RAM running both Audacity and Zoom and my browser. Uh, and when I was running tab nine, it was getting up to 11, just like with one Vim pane open. So it was slowing everything down. I have 30, 30 gigs, but it was slowing everything down. And then it would like the, the completion items for it was so slow relative to TypeScript that it would like pop up at the last second. I'd hit tab and then it'd auto complete the wrong thing. <laughs> so I just wanted to like throw my computer out of a window by the end of it. But um, I think the thing is, a lot of people who are starting out think that um, programming is just like knowing the right combination of uh, characters to like in- invoke to make the computer do what you want. But 99% of programming is not communicating to the computer. It's computing. It's communicating to your future self and to other developers. Like the magic is not in uh, the, the fact that the computer spun up and spit on a, a pretty picture. So... What did you tell me before? Uncle Bob described it as like painting a picture or something. Painting a picture. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think that was. Uh, what was that? That's software patterns. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, that's a weird. Patterns, yeah. Okay. yeah. But uh, that that's what like people say. Like software developers are going to be automated away. But uh, like, are you going to have a, a an AI that can uh, like iterate software and understand? requirements from the business you know how hard it is to understand requirements when they come from a product manager they're so they don't know what they want it's up to you with you all of your knowledge of the system and of where that person is coming from and of the context of your domain to like piece together all of these little contextual clues into is this what you wanted imagine if google image search was a developer like it would just give you the absolute wrong thing every time Well, you see those image classification tools where, you know, sometimes 80% of the time you'll say it's a dog and then 20% It's a blueberry time. muffin, yeah. See, the product manager is going to come in and say, we're looking for like a really cute corgi. <laughs> and the AI programmer is going to be like, okay, there's a blueberry muffin. <laughs> well, you'll be writing like your API. You'll be like, get users, get businesses, get dogs. I think like uh, the... If you could integrate that stuff with a, a lot better semantic knowledge somehow, I'm not a, a machine learning person, but if it had a lot better knowledge of the language itself, I could see value in like AI assisted programming, where instead of having to write a whole bunch of snippets and stuff, like a lot of the boilerplate is taken care of for you. Um, but uh, I don't see, I don't see like AI itself or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, like replacing us anytime soon after my experience. <laughs> So, well, no code tools will, will come first, right? First, yeah. you need the good no code tools. Yeah. Also, those things are of questionable like legality. I think Copilot is using uh, code that can't be used commercially. So they trained it off of like all, a whole bunch of GitHub repos, which have licenses that don't allow that. So, yeah, we'll see oh. if anything happens with that. Yeah. Also, like whose code is, think about who is 
publicly posting code. That's one of the, uh, another issue with like all of these machine learning things is you you underestimate the impact of all the shitty data in the system. Someone will write a regular expression and then you'll be like, okay, I need a regex for email. And it'll spit out a regular expression that matches emails, but it'll also be a security, vul- security vulnerability and it'll fuck you over. Because <laughs> it was written by, you know, a junior developer in uh, Sweden, you know, who knows. But if someone, if there's some feedback loop that might improve the system, so if someone like yourself could flag that snippet and be like, this is a bad snippet, and then give a reason why, maybe it could correct the whole system. I mean, that's the whole idea. Isn't I it? just Having think there's too much context. Training? Yeah. There's too much context to the system when you when you're naming things and when you're coming up with like uh uh like new new uh endpoints and everything. I don't I don't see how it could how it could work. I would love to hear if people end up using context. this for like a full year. But it's not even just like application context. Like I feel like that's that's what like Elon is doing when he's saying like AI is going to take over the world. He's like he's only thinking about like oh, well we made an AI that can like uh drive so how hard can it be to replicate emotions (laughs) (laughs) i just write some tests (laughs) how hard can it be road rage and then you learn how to rage about this yeah exactly i i don't know uh uh, anyway yeah no 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 more ai code completion tools for me i'm sticking with vim and uh all my shitty old tools that actually run and don't consume all of my ram and you'll probably be better off yeah a healthier happier individual healthier, happier. And the better you get at using those tools, that will just make you more productive. Yeah. I mean, just like tab, like tab nine in Copilot, how much do you want like some other random person's code in your code base? It's literally Stack Overflow as a service. If you have, a, if you have like a, someone who like copy paste code and just like directly dumps it into your app, they're, they are probably better than Copilot. Maybe that should be the service. Maybe it should just be screen share on demand. Yeah, exactly. Just pay someone to code along with you. Code along. Yeah, I'll do it. That's right. That's uh, buy that domain name before we upload this. Codealong.com. Codealong.com. Yeah. Man, so yeah. how was that? Do you have a great time? I'm waiting for you to. Are we? Yeah. Are you gonna? What? There it is. Oh, okay. oh sorry. <laughs> I don't really know how to end the episodes. <laughs> I have the podcast board today, so I'm I'm the responsible adult, but uh, I'm not really good at that. I'd just rather keep talking. I'll go another hour. Feels good to be back. Feels yeah. good to be back in the podcast chair in the microphone. It'll be way better when this lockdown's over. Let me tell you. There's so, I just don't have the context of being in the same room as someone, you know? Like, there's so, the such a delay. Takes, the podcast takes a lot to put together. That's true. I've got to hit the record button and then (laughs) at the end of it, I have to hit save. Uh, Yep. That's a lot of work for me. I mean, I'm a lazy person, so I can't do it. I'm long-term lazy. I wonder if there's a uh, machine learning tool to help you do a podcast. Podcast. Ooh, machine learning podcast. I'll do that. I'll buy one of those. Someone hit me up. write the script for us. All right, follow us on Twitter uh, and join our Discord. Goodbye. Shit, I didn't let the music finish. I'm so amateur.